Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Brilliant, volatile, passionate, incisive, clinically insane. That's Dr. Archimedes Wolf, the unforgettable protagonist of Go Figure, which returns for a second season on Masterpiece Mystery. I'm Alan Cumming. Tonight, we welcome back perhaps the brainiest detective in all our glorious pantheon, Archimedes Wolf, a mathematician who solves all her cases by boiling them down to their raw numbers. Now we present Go Figure. Season 2, Episode X, when X is the set of all positive integers that are not perfect squares, and there are two distinct integers in A whose sum is 104. But who could have killed my husband? Everybody loved him. Somebody didn't, Lady Doppler-Kepler, and that somebody killed him. But who? Any ideas, Dr. Wolf? It's obvious who did it, right? Doesn't everybody see? No, not really. Okay, try to stay with me here. Let f of xy be a continuous, real-valued function on the plane of xy. Suppose that for every rectangle r of area 1, the double integral of xy over r equals 0. Must f of xy be identically 0? So I define the two variable functions like this. That inside function, where s value is fixed and integrated with respect to t, so its second-order partials turn out to be continuous. Usually, in Calculus 3, this function is used to make the connection between Fubini's theorem and Clairaut's theorem. I put xy equals 5 here. Do you see? Now 2 times 3 equals 7, so if we differentiate this function in a different order, we still get double integral 0, which means your husband was killed by a left-handed, lactose-intolerant Croatian woman with a drinking problem and two Dalmatian puppies, one of whom is allergic to bee stings. Excuse me, did you say two times three equals seven? Of course. Uh, two times three equals six. Maybe in some other base system? No! Two times three equals six. You're absolutely certain? Yes. Okay, I may have to rework this equation a little. So now we've got an open disk D with a radius of delta. If T is a number between zero and delta, then function value at this point... This may take a while. Tune in next week for Go Figure, Season 2, Episode 2, if T is a number larger than 1. And now I think of this guy as nine lines that cut a square into two quadrilaterals whose areas are in the proportion 2 to 3. <laughs> And McEnroe, I kill myself sometimes. All right, this is indeed a show about mathematics. It's uh, going to be at times a show about competitive mathematics, but it's also going to be a, a show about people who, who do mathematics uh, at a very high level and why they do it uh, and why it seems so difficult for the rest of us. I mean, it, let me put it a, a, a different way. Usually, if you ask a physicist or a research biologist to explain his or her research, that person can kind of dumb it down enough to you so that you can sort of understand more or less what they're doing. With mathematics, it's really difficult, I think. And those of us who, it should be a universal language, but in some ways it's the language that so many of us don't speak. So we're going to talk about why that is and, and maybe what 
could be done about it. But first, um, our producer, Josh Nilea, uh, went out into the streets to find out how people think and feel about math. I'm wondering, how do you feel about math? How do I feel about math? I'm glad it's there. <laughs> glad somebody else figured it out. <laughs> it is horrible. <laughs> Why is that? Not the best at numbers. I don't know. It just uh, doesn't appeal to me. Math is exciting. We need it every day. And I would just advise every child to stay in school. It will help you through life. When I hear of math, I say, that's why I went to law school. So I wouldn't have to do math. Because I can't do math to save my life. <laughs> I, yeah, I think math is important. I don't know if they're doing better right now because of the computers and all the children are online and they're learning more or they just need basic sitting in their seats in class and learning how to do math. Are you good at math personally? Not really. I'm fine until we get those equations if a train leaves Chicago at 8 o'clock and the train leaves. So we, my kids always tease me about that because I always joke. All right, word problems. All right, let me tell you who's on the show today. In the studio with me is Xiao Wu, uh, a pre-med student at Yale University and the 2013 uh, and therefore most recent recipient of the Elizabeth Lowell Putnam Prize for the top female performer in the prestigious Putnam Mathematics Competition. We'll tell you all about what that competition is uh, and what it means uh, to have won it. Uh, also with us, uh, Mark Saul, the 1984 winner of the Presidential Awards for Excellence in Mathematics and Science Teaching as well as the Mathematics Associations of America Director of Competitions. He spent over 35 years teaching and promoting the advancement of mathematics across the world. And also with us, uh, Dr. Keith Dublin. Now, he's the math guy on NPR's Weekend Edition. He's many other things besides the author of 32 books, including, I believe, at least one book about uh, actually really solving crimes uh, using mathematics. But um, author of 32 books, including the, millennial, the Millennium Problems, The Seven Greatest Unsolved Mathematical Problems of Our Time, five of which Xiao Wu will eventually solve. Because you get $5 million. You get $1 million every time you solve one, right? Yeah. All right. So <laughs> let's get to work, all right? Um, and, all right. And we'd love to take your phone calls as we go along here, but let us kind of uh, set up a framework here uh, right from the beginning. Um, uh, Dr. Keith Devlin, I- I'm going to start with you. And, okay. and um, you know, you may have been able to hear of the tape that we were playing of people out on the street. It's a, a song that you've heard <laughs> sung many, many times before. Right. And And... You know, one of the things that uh, I've read on your blog, Devlin's Angle, yeah. uh, is um, uh, I actually linked to a video by another mathematician called Against Answer Getting. And I've, I wonder if some of that avoidance and some of that fear uh, and loathing that you hear in, in, in that tape is the result of people who grew up in a culture in which mathematics and answer getting were pretty much the same thing. Absolutely. Imagine if you had never heard music being played, but you had to spend the first six or seven years at school learning how to read and write musical notation and play musical scales. I don't think many people would enjoy music. Um, And it's the same with mathematics. We show them the nuts and bolts and the details of how to do it, but we don't show them the beauty and the challenge and the fun of actually doing it. That's the problem. People have never... The people on the streets, except the one who said it was exciting, have never experienced what mathematics is. They've been stuck at the ground level of learning the basics, the the nuts and bolts, you know. Van Gogh would not have become a painter if all he had to do all his life was paint fences. Painting fences is boring. But, boy, if you can paint like Van Gogh, that's really cool. 
Um, Zhao, Zhao, I think you said something similar to Josh as you were getting ready for this show, that for you, mathematics isn't about getting answers. It's about learning to think a certain way. Yeah, like how you approach the problems, how you interpret the problems in another way, and how you can solve it in, um, like with total different solutions. So, and Keith Devlin, I know in one interview you, you talked about a moment when you were 15, 16, 17 where you had sort of a, a breakthrough or maybe even a math epiphany. Uh, uh, um, 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 epiphany? I don't know. There must be some word for it. Where, and you described it as almost like uh, uh, climbing up above a forest canopy and being able to see the world kind of spread out before you in a different way. Um, and maybe you could say a little bit more about that. I mean, I think it's an inaccessible idea for most of us that, that you could see the whole of it and it would be beautiful. Yeah, well, you know, I, I went to school, I went to high school in the UK. At the time, space, space exploration was beginning. The Russians had put up, 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 up uh, Sputnik and, and Kennedy said we we're going to get a man on the moon. So there was a great excitement to be for a young teenage boy, about to, or a young pre-teenager in those days, in my case, of, of getting into the space age. And so I wanted to go to university and become a physicist to do physics and then maybe go into engineering or to do space science. That seemed really cool. In order to become a physicist, I knew and my teachers told me, you're going to have to learn to be good at mathematics because I wasn't that great at mathematics back then because I wasn't interested. I found it pretty boring and tedious. But I had a motivation to learn mathematics in order to become a physicist to get into the space exploration business. But then when I got to 16, I realized that all of these, what used to seem to me separate, dull techniques for solving problems, they all were just manifestations or little pimples on the edge of this glorious world of mathematical thinking that Shao just mentioned too. So it's, it's this wonderful idea of being able to think a certain way and to see things, to see things that are otherwise invisible. I often say that mathematics is a way of making the invisible visible. Things, hidden structures become visible through this way of thinking called mathematics. And once everything fell into place, it really was like a jigsaw puzzle falling into place. And suddenly I realized it wasn't a collection of isolated, dull, uninspiring techniques it was this wonderful way of thinking, and those ways of th those particular techniques I'd been taught were just li little pinpricks on the edges of this. The beauty was hidden beneath it. It was like the tops of little islands that show up above the ocean, and all you can see is a tiny bit of rock. But you put on a, on, on, on a scuba diving and you go underneath and you see those are not little isolated bits of rock. There's a beautiful world beneath the surface of the ocean. And as a mathematician, you swim in that world and you see the beauty, you see the coral, you see all of the creatures. And the poor suckers still on the outside up above the water just see those little bits of rocks and it looks boring. Down underneath in that sea of mathematics... You see the beauty. And I, it was about 16 when I saw that. And the moment I did, I lost all interest in going into space research. I became a research mathematician. All right. So let's add Mark Saul to this conversation. Let's add you, too, if you're out there listening. Our number is 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. So, Mark Saul, um, let me tell you a, a sad story. Um, that kind of connects to what Keith and, and Xiao have been talking about. Uh, so uh, when I uh, was a student, a freshman at Yale University, where Xiao uh, is a pre-med student now, um, I, I was assigned, you are assigned randomly to a faculty advisor. Uh, and you have to meet with this person once, I think, per semester. This person does have to kind of sign your your statement of courses that you're going to take. And so I was assigned to a man named Abraham Robinson, who was a mathematician. Now, I was exactly a product of what Keith Devlin just described. I, I saw math as a dull, 
uninspiring, disjointed network of, uh, of, not even a network, disjointed bunch of techniques for solving problems that I wasn't interested in solving. And I didn't think I was any good at them anyway. So I really didn't, I really did not look forward to my sessions with Abraham Robinson. And I don't think he looked forward to his sessions with me either, because I was trying to get out of math as much as I possibly could. And, and so I, just a, the short version of this story is I later realized this man, as you probably know, was, was one of the giants of his generation. He was the inventor of something called non-standard analysis, which is a way of looking at infinitesimals. He also had this amazing story about just having escaped from Nazis. I mean, this man really would have been a fabulous person to get to know. And at the level that Keith Devlin just described, he was probably a person who could communicate some of the beauty and the integrity of math to me. But I was I had already become this really prejudiced, crabbed, hard-shelled person. And and I guess this is something that you deal with all the time. How, how do you prevent and, 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 and there's also a, a fundamental paradox, too, which is I couldn't understand Abraham Robinson unless I did learn some of these techniques, right? <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're asking the question which occurred to me as I was listening to Xiao and, and um, Keith, which is how do you get there from here? Right. How do you get that scuba equipment that Keith wants us to have? Okay, so let me tell you, as, as long as everybody's telling their own story, I'll tell my story. Mm-hmm. I, I was not. I was a total nerd. I was totally different from what you're talking about. I loved math because I loved the nitty gritty and the techniques, and I was good at it. And I could solve the equations the way the teacher wanted to up until ninth grade. Mm. And then I was set a very good teacher, and she was giving us some, what was then an advanced topic, um, uh, arithmetic progressions. And I was sitting next to a friend of mine uh, who's still a friend of mine, and he was brilliant. And so the teacher gave us these formulas for arithmetic questions. I said, well, wonderful. They're great formulas. And then she gave us a little problem. Insert three arithmetic. Well, you'll find out what this means if you don't know in a minute. <laughs> but insert three arithmetic means between three and 16. So I started doing it, and I had this formula. I had to plug into another formula. And it was, it was like untying a knot. I loved it. I said to my friend David, well, I said, um, well, let's do it. Come on, let's do it together. He said, oh, I did it already. <laughs> it's three, seven, 10, 13, 16. And I looked at it and I said, of course it is. The, uh, what arithmetic means are, are numbers that are equally spaced. Mm-hmm. And he could just do one. He saw through it into the meaning of the formulas. And he could do the problem just by looking at it because he saw what the meaning was. I was doing the problem slogging over land. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that connection between the intuition. Thinking is really intuition. And the expression of the intuition and the encapsulation of intuition so that it can go on to, to produce more, th- more thinking uh, that, you have to, that you have to communicate as a teacher. As a teacher, I want to make every problem a thinking problem, not a, uh, a rote memorization problem or to apply a technique problem. You know, I, I want to I hold on to that and come back to it. I think it'll be great to, to ask Xiao Wu some questions about that, too, when we get to um, what happens in, 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 a, in a competition like, um, like the one that she's about to go into, uh, how much um, intuition as, of a, as a, opposed to brute technique she uses. But before we do that, um, Xiao, since everybody is telling their stories, let's hear your story. You, grew, you did not grow up initially in the United States, right? And so were you exposed to a different kind of math teaching? Yeah, um, I grew up in China, and I went to Singapore for high school. So uh, back in China, um, math training was like a big thing for kids. So I was in there too, and um, the training was very stressful, and the structure was rigid. I remember, I still remember, like every Wednesday we would get a math test 
in my class. And every Friday, we will get the test score back. So I call it like Gray Wednesday and Black Friday for me. <laughs> and whenever I like didn't do well, my teacher would call me into his office and like scold me like why you didn't do well. So that was very stressful. And then in Singapore, the math competitions were um, more flexible. I would say we had like buzz runs. So when you go on stage and you have to solve a problem within a minute, so that was kind of fun. And we also have like several touch runs. So it makes uh, math more um, more fun for me. I mean, um, also like after coming here, I think uh, it's no longer as stressful because I'm not going into like do a math PhD or whatever. So for me right now, comp competition math is just like fun. Um, something I t would do to um, just like to stay focused and to forget about whatever else I have to do. Math is something that makes your problems go away. I don't think most people think about it that way. But um, So, Keith Devlin, listening to that. The only time I ever miss my stop on the subway is from doing math. <laughs> well, see, that's... The world disappears. Um, well, you know, Keith Devlin, as you listen to that, I mean, here's this uh, young woman who's, uh, in fact, uh, you know, uh, very near the top, at least, of competitive math right now. Uh, and it seems as though she learned, did some of the early work through exactly the kind of uh, routine and grinding and stressful drilling that, that ought to, in fact, dampen someone's enthusiasm for math. So how, how do we deal with that paradox? Yeah, and, and indeed, you know, I mean, I was self-motivated by wanting to go into physics, but I, I found it dull and boring. I just, it wasn't a teacher that was forcing to do it. I was, I was forcing it onto myself, but I had the same experiences as, as both Mark and Shell did. Um, you know... <laughs> In terms of competitions, I should mention that I'm completely different from Shao. I'm so slow at solving mathematical problems um, that throughout my schooling, um, I was never regarded as that good at school until I was in the high school and self-motivated. And then I just looked fast because the, all of the problems I'd already done before uh, on my own. But I, I'm, I'm not a fast thinker, so I actually n never entered math competitions. I can't do well at them. So there are other pathways in. Um, if, you're in if you're motivated and you can do it by the fast competitions, they are wonderful. But an awful lot of people like me, they have the ability, but it takes time. And for me... I have to see the underlying beauty, that scuba diving thing I mentioned. So for me, a teacher would have to show me that beauty, show me where it leads to. Uh, in other words, teach me music appreciation before sitting me in front of the instrument. Some people you can put in front of an instrument, they'll learn to play. Some people need to appreciate music before they'll teach themselves. In my case, I, need to, I would need it to have been shown the beauty, the appreciation, so that I could self-motivate it to do it. But to this day, I'm slow at mathematical thinking, and so uh, I would never do well in a competition. And, 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 and nor would I do well in a classical exam. The only way I got through my university exams was by f guessing in advance what most of the questions were going to be, <laughs> which is usually not difficult, and making sure I had those techniques at my fingertips. So in a sense, I was just regurgitating stuff I'd already done. I got to play the game of mathematics education to be successful, and once I was through it and into a PhD where you've got three years to solve problems, I, 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 I got into my element. You know, this goes back to that. This has been coming up a lot in, uh, on our show and in my thinking a lot lately, is that not just in math, but in 
but everywhere that our exi- idea of examinations, I think, uh, is for the most part wrong. And that really you've been educated in something. You, I, I guess I'm addressing this to you, Keith, that you've been educated in something. You've been taught something. You've learned something when you can carry on a conversation about it, a meaningful, in-depth conversation about it with somebody who knows more than you do. So, uh, you know, you probably would have been more rewarded and less bored by your examinations if, in fact, they were oral and, and you actually had to go in and discuss what you knew with the person oh, you're teaching. Yeah, and indeed, and that's really what it's like in a PhD. When you're doing your PhD, you're giving seminars regularly, your supervisor, the other students, the other professors are there. You're giving talks to them. They're questioning you all the time. It's a back and forth. You're, the important exam you do as a PhD student is when you defend your thesis. And it's a conversation. You have to argue for what you've done and you have to answer yourself. Under those circumstances, I actually do perform fast because I'm in the moment, I'm in the flow. It's a human interaction. And then my mind is racing, but sit me in front of a piece of paper on a, on a desk with, three, with a clock ticking down for three hours, and I have as much difficulty as, as anybody else who thinks they hate maths. All right, we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the, those competitions. In the final segment, uh, we're going to have um, uh, kind of a, um, a big meaning kind of conversation about the, the larger meaning of math and the applied meaning of math, too. But we're coming back, we'll talk about the kind of competitions that Zhao enters. There is a shape with four sides, so it's a square. And the one who has nine is looking fine, and its name is not a guy. Everybody turns just in time to see the Pentagon arrive. All right, we're back. Um, and I was just enjoying the Janelle Monet music coming in there. Um, all right, so we're back. Uh, we're talking about mathematics with Xiao Wu. Uh, she's a, a pre-med student at Yale and the most recent recipient of the Elizabeth Lowell Putnam Prize uh, for the top male, female performer in the Putnam Mathematics Competition. Mark Saul is with us. He actually has spent 35 years teaching and promoting the advancement of mathematics and organizing competitions, too. Uh, and uh, Dr. Keith Devlin is here. He's the math guy in NPR's Weekend Edition, author of 32 books, including the Millennium problems, the seven greatest unsolved mathematical puzzles of our time, asterisk, there might only be six at this point, um, but uh, I put, the, put in the asterisk, that's not actually part of the title. Uh, so, um, Mark Saul, I'm going to begin, as we talk about these competitions, I'm going to begin with you, and just maybe you can tell us a little bit about this, the tradition of mathematical competitions. It, you could almost say that as long as there has been mathematics, there, have, there has been competitive mathematics, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, one reason is that uh, although you can't really observe mathematics being done, it's very hard, but you can observe the result of the mathematics, and you can judge it to be correct or incorrect very quickly. It's, you can't have a, 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 co- a competition in uh, oil painting in the same way, in, in quite the same way. But um, so, so mathematics competitions are as old as Archimedes. Archimedes is the famous cattle problem. It's one of it, it's it's part of the 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 classics of mathematics, which was posed as part of part of uh, challenges. He was with had with another mathematician, and it's come down to us. This is the hardest problem he could find. Um, there's a the um, and the the thing that I think is important is that some of this stuff has become. Uh, Real significant mathematics, not just something, not just a game. Uh, so, for example, in the in the um, in Renaissance Italy, the in the um, universities there, the, the early universities, mathematicians would have contests at solving equations, solving cubic and quartic equations, and they would go from town to town and and they would have their methods and they would uh, demonstrate how well they could do it. This has become over the centuries 
well, what we call Galois theory, the, the, the solution of, equ of polynomial equations, which is still of incredible importance to us today. You can't get money out of an ATM machine without tapping into those, uh, those, those uh, methods that, we use, that were uh, developed originally with that kind of, that kind of thinking. Uh, and if you look at the history, there are all these wonderful stories, cloak and dagger stories about one person. Uh, Cardan went to Tartaglia and said, I'm going to such and such a town. Just give me your solution and I'll wow them, but I'll give it right back. I won't tell anybody. And of course, then Cardan published his solution. <laughs> and it's now known as Cardan's solution, but every book says because it was developed by Tartaglia. So. <laughs> and, and I understand that the, these these competitions kind of vary a little bit across cultures. Uh, do I have it right that, that uh, Russian math competitions um, traditionally have been different from maybe the ones that Xiao is going to be competing in here in the U.S.? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, the mathemat. I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression. The mathematics is the same. If mm. the answer is right here, it's right in in Russia. But um, Russian competitions was, were uh, shaped by very different historical sources. They uh, rarely had multiple choice contests, for example. And the reason is, one reason is, they couldn't reproduce um, uh, a test paper because having access to a Xerox machine or, or a mimeograph machine, something like that, um, implied the possibility of uh, subversion. You could make your own you know, make your own leaflets against the government or whatever it was severely controlled so when you make when you ha gave a test you had to write it on the blackboard mm. so they and they they uh, and it was great it ended up to be greatly to their advantage oddly because the tests that the, the, the contests they gave are long answer uh think of them as essay style questions they require proof not just a computation and then an answer and very few of them require just a, a single a single answer, which is the more typical competition in the West. And uh, another reason that that was possible is that uh, Russian mathematicians had this very deep old tradition of going back into the high schools and even the elementary schools and working with the educators there, with the gifted kids. So you had this supply of mathematicians who could read through student answers and grade them. Um, I've tried to do that here. I got, for, for 100, comp 100 papers, I got maybe three people to help me, hmm. and it took forever. You just couldn't quite do the same thing here. It's cultural forces that, that, that shape it. Let's hear a little bit from uh, Xiao Wu about what, what she's about to go through. You've already got nerves of steel from your uh, Singapore upbringing where, I mean, you already had to do all this stuff under a lot of pressure. So this is a little bit different. This is the Putnam Mathematics Competition. You're already number one in, in, your, in your category. Uh, and we'll get, we can talk about that category issue a yeah, little, little bit yeah. later because that's an, also an interesting question, too, that there's a men's and women's category. So what's going to happen? December 6th, you start all over again. What's going to happen? You walk into a room, they hand you a piece of paper? Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, so the they will deliver the papers to each university, and the um, the professors here would administer the tasks. And um, uh, there are two parts. In the morning, there are like three hours for six problems, and in the afternoon, it's three hours for another six problems. And the problems are arranged according um, in ascending difficulty. So um, the maximum score you get is 120. And uh, the mean, like a median, was like between zero and one. Okay, so I looked at some of these uh, sample uh, problems and problems that have appeared on on previous years' tests, and I mean, I really, I had absolutely no idea what was being talked about. Um, and I even watched a video of a guy <laughs> walking me through his proof 
of one of the problems that was on a previous Putnam uh, competition test, and I didn't understand. And I watched it twice, and I still don't understand anything <laughs> about it. But so I, I can't ask you an intelligent question. But let me ask you this: going back to um, to what I think Mark was talking about in the first segment, when you look at one of these incredibly difficult problems, these are problems meant to confound or at least challenge the most talented young mathematicians in in the U.S. Do you begin to solve it intuitively, like what what might be the right answer to this, or how you know how would I how would I sort of you know just I think through this, or, or do you begin applying computational and solution techniques to it right away? Um, I guess first thing you should realize that people design this task to be completed in three hours, mm. so that they're not like. Extremely difficult question that requires like a, one year to solve it. <laughs> so, um, and normally I would start by like really understanding the question mm. and um, maybe apply some um, small numbers to play with the cases and see which is the key component, what is the key question in this problem. And then um, there will also be like standard techniques you might apply and you just, yeah, you solve that basically by intuition and, like, small trial and error. All right. Yeah. Um, I'm going to come back to that in a second. But, you know, Keith Devlin, um, you know, you were saying before that uh, you wouldn't fare well under these circumstances. Yeah. You might prefer to have a year uh, to yep. solve one of these problems. <laughs> um, months anyway. <laughs> but, you know, in, in some ways, that whole idea of competitiveness, obviously there are some drawbacks to it and there's some ways in which it might inhibit a certain amount of creative or aesthetic th- thinking about math. On the other hand, human beings are essentially competitive creatures. Yeah. And, and so you've written a book about the Millennium Problems, which is essentially a competition. It's not a head-to-head competition. Nobody's, they're not all sitting in a, the same room. But, you know, that goal and this big prize of a million dollars is put out there yeah. kind of to make people compete for it, right? Yeah, and I am certainly very competitive, and I actually like doing Putnam problems, but it just takes me hours or weeks or sometimes a month maybe before I can do them because of the way I, I set about doing them. But I get the same pleasure that Shao does. It just takes me an awful lot longer than she can do it in. But yeah, um, people have got a natural competitive thing, and mathematics, because there's, there are right answers to the kinds of questions we're talking about here, uh, you can set them up as competitions, and the, the Millennium problems were designed really to just popularize mathematics. It was a, it was a, it was a, uh, a mathematician from Harvard who uh, uh, who, who went on and made a lot of money in the stock market, and, and, and but always loved mathematics. He wasn't a math major himself, but he liked mathematics. And the idea was by attaching a million dollars to each of these seven problems, it would become a big news story. This was done in the year 2000. It was a millennium issue, and that there would be sort of prime, pos- prime problems that mathematicians could sort of set their sights on. The same had been done at the beginning of the 20th century with a set of problems called the Hilbert problems. And for much of the early 20th century, many mathematicians, including I think Abraham Robinson, by the way, spent a lot of time trying to solve these Hilbert problems because they were sort of beacon problems. And a good way to make your name as a young mathematician was to solve a Hilbert problem. Um, the Millennium Problems are meant to provide beacons as well um, that would regard, and the idea is that these are problems that almost certainly will take many years and maybe many people's accumulated efforts to solve. So these are the Mount Everests of of, of mathematics. They're the landing a person on the moon, uh, landing on a a meteorite or something, or a comet. It was that kind of thing they were trying to do, big things to look up to, uh, one small step for a man, one big giant leap for mankind sort of thing. That's what these millennium problems are about. So they were designed to be 
they were chosen as problems that had been around a long time, had a lot of depth, and almost certainly wouldn't be solved uh, by someone working for a couple of weekends. Um, I was sort of teasing or joking about the fact that your book may have to be retitled in subsequent editions, but this also <laughs> speaks to, I think, the, the temperament and mentality of great mathematicians. Uh, the Poincaré conjecture yeah. supposedly yeah. or was solved by this Russian math genius, Grigory yeah. Perelman, who not only refused the million dollars, he's, I think, also turned down a Fields Prize on another occasion, which is, Indeed, you know, yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of, there's a very interesting personal story about, I've never met him myself, but I know people who have met him, and he's a sort of a very interesting recluse sort of a character. Um, but you know, it's worth mentioning that it was a long time after, after Perelman had produced this proof and posted it on the web before mathematicians even began to think that it might be true. I mean, they, they knew it, 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 there was a good chance it wouldn't be, but it was a long time before the consensus, consensus started to emerge that this was true. This was not a solution that a mathematician or a small group of mathematicians could look at in a weekend and decide whether it's right or wrong. The nature of a lot of the modern problems in mathematics, including probably almost all of the millennium problems, is such that when someone comes out with a problem solution, it could take weeks or months or maybe even years before the mathematical community agrees it's correct. Uh, we're in a realm of problems here that really are very not only difficult to solve, but difficult to verify whether the proof is correct or not. The same happened when Andrew Weil solved Fermat's last theorem a decade or so ago. It took um, more than a decade, is it? Yeah, two thousand two. I think seven years. Uh, Twenty years, years ago. Yeah. So. Um, Mark Saul, I, I want to go back to the, the Putnam uh, contest, the competition that uh, Xiao will be back in uh, starting uh, on, on uh, Saturday, December 6th, and then over a series of Saturdays. And I'm, I, I'm going to ask you to kind of do a translation. I don't know how uh, easy this is going to be for you, Mark, but I want you to try to imagine one of the kinds of problems that Xiao is likely to uh, encounter on, uh, on the, 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 the test papers here uh, for, the, for this competition and, 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 and translate it into labor person's terms. In other words, is there a way to, t I looked at all these problems and I really didn't know what they were questions about. Um, is there a way that you could sort of think of the, a typical kind of problem, one, one of the kinds of problems that may come up at this level, of the Putnam level, and tell us sort of in, in our own uh, ignoramus uh, states, what's, what's it a question about? Well, okay, you're putting me on the spot because I don't have the questions in front of me. But um, this comes back to something we were talking about before, about um, you mentioned having conversations with, uh, you really know a, a, a field when you can have a conversation with somebody who knows more than you. Mm. I would add to that, you really know a field if you can have a, con a meaningful conversation with someone who knows less than you. Mm -hmm. And that's called teaching. You're doing that right now. Well, <laughs> some, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, um, Xiao and Keith, you can help me i heard something on in, on in the intro when when you had the the um the detective story mm -hmm. there was something about a double integral if it's if it's zero in in every rectangle must be did i hear that correctly yeah the actually i stole part i wrote that intro and i stole part of it from a putnam problem exactly what it sounds like that people cut somebody cut up putnam problems and wolf them together mm. uh, anyway well shao did you remember that one yeah, um, actually, I think problems like that are pretty hard to describe. But then in Panam, they're generally like a type of question about game strategies that might be more approachable. Game strategies, yeah. Yeah, so let's say uh, we play the game mm -hmm. and uh, I move first. And then we have um, a row of spaces in front of us. And you know there are like odd number of spaces and we have stones. 
So this was the um, problem from last year. So um, <laughs> each person can place a stone on on space, and then or they can take a stone from a space and put two stones um, to the nearest left and right empty space. Um, Josh, write this down. <laughs> yeah, so this was the last problem of part two last year.、Mm. I don't think anyone solved this.、Mm-hmm. But then you just listen to this problem; it doesn't seem that hard. But no one actually solved it. Well, and y- and you can actually play the game, right? Yeah, yeah, like you can play with yourself when you're doing the problem, probably. Right, well, and you, I'm sure you did. <laughs> yeah.、Um, and and so th- this is a classic type of problem. It's a problem because you see the goal. Yeah. You know how to solve, to get a strategy for the game, and so on. You know the rules, but you don't know how to get in between. Exactly.、Uh, you have to have all three three of those elements to have a problem. If you don't know what you're supposed to do, which is what Colin was describing, then it's not a problem to you. It's a, it's a, it's gibberish. If you already know what to do, it's not a problem to you. It's an exercise. Um, we're going to wrap up this segment. I want to leave some time for our final segment.、Uh, I've got、um, a lot of questions about how all this stuff turns up、uh, in the real world. Although Richard Feynman said about physics that physics、uh, is like sex; there are practical applications, but that's not why we do it. Um, but um, and that, that true, the same may be true、Tell、of math. Tell me more about how it's the same as sex. Yeah, <laughs> that may be、uh, true about、uh, of mathematics as well. But so we'll get to that. But before we do that,、um, because this did come up, and、uh, Shao, I'm sure people are interested to know. I mean. I mean, most academic、uh, competitions. I don't think there is a men's and a women's division. So, so why is there one in the Putnam、um, mathematics competition?、Um, I think this prize is recent. It's only、um, it started in nineteen seventies.、Mm. Um, yeah, um, the I I guess they were just like set this prize to encourage more female participants、mm. because it is the fact that. You will see a last female participant in Putnam. I remember last year I was、um, there. Were, there were only two girls in the room taking the test,、mm-hmm. and then in most of my math classes, I might be one of the few、um, girls in the class. So. And so, in that competition, finishing first among women, do you know how that equates to how you would have done? Uh, if the men were included, yeah, I think my absolute ranking is the seventy seventy third. That means there are like seventy two guys in front of me、mm-hmm. did better than me. Yeah, I want you to go in there this year and kick their asses. All right, <laughs> I mean、okay. Saturday, December six. It's on. It's on. All right. <laughs> okay. I want you to destroy some of those guys. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about mathematics. We've got lots of interesting tweets and calls and all kinds of stuff too. <laughs> Here's another one. Let p of x be a polynomial of degree n such that p of x equals q of x times p of x, where q of x is a quadratic. So what's the deal with airplane food? Am I right? Oh come on, people, work with me here. I hate it when there's a math convention in town. Today's show was produced by Josh Nolea, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Our intern is Nia Tyler. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Lady Doppler Kepler was played by Lydia Brown. The part of Lydia Brown was played by Bill Curry. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making a human equilateral triangle, visit our website wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to beavers. 
And now, back to Colin. You knew we would do a salute to beavers sooner. But beavers are really interesting. Uh, and, uh, in fact, uh, they are being reappraised because they may actually have a significant role to play in dealing with the effects of climate change. So the whole idea of going and blowing up one of their dams is no longer cool. Not that it ever really was. Anyway, that's tomorrow. We're talking about math today. Uh, and uh, we have uh, a great panel here. Um, you know, uh, I wanted to sort of turn away from the competitions. And, and Dr. Keith Devlin, I want you to talk a little bit about um, I, I mean, I think a lot of people th- are listening to all this and they're thinking, well, this all sounds uh, very isolated from the world that I live in. Um, and, and, and it is sort of true, to go back to that Feynman joke, you know, I mean, that, that there are practical applications uh, um, to math, just the way there is a practical use of sex, but that's not why we do it. Um, so it, 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 I, I assume that people who are doing math at the level that we're talking about right now, they're not doing it so that text messaging will work better someday. <laughs> but text messaging works better because somebody did math a long time ago. Yeah, indeed. And in fact, almost everything in modern society from Google, from the Internet, from CDs, from DVDs, uh, from the cloud, all of that depends upon very deep esoteric mathematics that mostly began by people's curiosity. Uh, Sometimes it took three or four years to find its application. Sometimes it took decades. Occasionally it took longer than that. But by and large, the people that are right at the cutting edge of mathematics, of pure mathematics, and for the first 20 years of my career, I I was very much a pure mathematician, we do it purely for the love of the discipline. Absolutely, that's what drives us. Um, but there's an awful lot of other math people who use mathematics in, 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 in practical ways. And in the second half of my career, I found myself working after I came to the United States for the Defense Department, for the computer industry. Uh, I worked for, 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 for a furniture manufacturer at one time as a consultant. I've worked for the U.S. Army as a consultant. Uh, I now have a, a, have a company that makes video games, educational video games, and circling back into education. So all of this esoteric stuff finds its way back into the world or not all of it, but almost all of it. In fact, it was, it's been said that mathematics has an unreasonable effect on us because we get more practical payback from mathematics than is believable when you look at the most esoteric parts of mathematics. It's hard to imagine uh, a problem, one of the millennium problems, at least most, some of the millennium problems, hard to imagine in them having, having a real application. But the way I describe it is when we solve an advanced problem in mathematics, it's like dislodging some snow at the top of a mountain. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but at the bottom, you've got an avalanche that can change the world and can certainly change the lives of many people. Research in pure mathematics plays around at the tops of mountains, and the rest of society feels the effect when the avalanche hits the deck. Um, the good kind of avalanche. No, uh, these are great avalanches. They're to, they're to, they're to, actually, mathematics is so powerful that, yes, it can do us great good, um, but it can do us great harm. Let's not forget that nuclear power came from, from, from pure mathematical uh, ideas uh, about exponential growth and so forth. And uh, nuclear power has its good side, but it also brought us nuclear weapons. So mathematics is a, is a powerful, sharp sword, but like any sharp sword, it's got two sides, a good side and a, and a bad side. It's how we use it. So um, I'm sitting next to um, one of the top young mathematicians in the United States. But Xiaowu, you're pre-med. So that means you (laughs) you don't want to be doing pure research mathematics or or you're not going to follow in uh, Keith Devlin's footsteps. Why is that? Um, I find that I find applying my knowledge in math and other areas to be more rewarding than just sitting and do pure math problems by themselves. 
And right now, um, I feel like I can use my knowledge in math to build models um, to do clinical research in medicine. Or people are starting to use graph theory to understand human brain um, in the neuroscience. So I find those applications really fascinating, and I want to try it someday. So it sounds like you're not going to be my family physician. You're going to be doing some kind of research medicine? Um, I can't say for sure, but I Mm. definitely want to do research uh, in the future. So, yeah. Mark Saul, this uh, brings up uh, a question, and it is the question, uh, the implicit question in what Keith Devlin had to say, too, which is, um, for there to be progress in human knowledge, a lot of the underlying engine of that progress is mathematics. Uh, and, and as Keith said, maybe it shows up in four years, maybe it shows up uh, in the real world in 25 or 50 years, uh, but, but it begins, so much of the fundament of it is mathematicians. It is therefore critical I guess, that we have lots of mathematicians. Um, are we making mathematicians at the rate that uh, human knowledge needs them at? Well, I'm not sure that the, the rate is, is, I mean, if you look at it globally, the, the short answer is yes, there are lots of people studying mathematics. Are, we, are, we studying, are, are they getting the right mathematics? Are we getting the right people? That's a, a much harder question. It's a, p- a political question, and it's a cultural question. Where are these people coming from? Um, it's a question that we have to look at just in the United States to make it very concrete. Um, where are the mathematicians coming from? Well, right away, more than half of them are coming from outside the United States, which is which is a problem because we're not growing our own. Mm. Um, and uh, part of it is the teaching, uh, which everybody can trash. It's very easy. But part of it is the cultural um, uh, rewards we have. Uh, my be- some of my best students, I'm in New York, some of my best students uh, wave, from me, wave at me from BMWs that they've earned on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, beca- because, because mathematics is so useful, it can be useful in that particular way. Now they do great work, and, and, and they, support, they support other people in mathematics, but we've lost them to pure math. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, we have to think about it. In other words, the question you're asking is, is a bigger question than about mathematics. It's about the structure of our, of our culture and our economics. In the, in, yeah, and the structure of our culture in terms of recognition. Um, uh, Xiao Wu, uh, when you won the uh, Elizabeth Lowell Putnam Prize uh, in the Putnam Mathematics Competition last year, I mean, what happened? Were you an instant celebrity? Um, not really. Actually, um, the result came out on April Fool's Day, so I thought it was a joke. <laughs> so I didn't take it seriously until the next day. And uh, I think the math department at Yale posted um, the results on their website, and that's pretty much it. That was it. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I mean, not th- well. Now you're an even bigger celebrity. You're on uh, WNPR, <laughs> but um, but but uh, Keith Devlin. In the time that we have left, I mean, it does sort of raise that whole question of sort of who we honor and who we know about. Somebody uh, tweeted to me during this. Show Talk about Alexander Grothendieck, uh, perhaps the uh, best mathematician ever, who died last week. Um, And and it is, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, told the story about meeting Abraham Robinson and having no idea who he is. I mean, there is something about this field where we don't really know about the people who are really good at it, and and we have trouble um, celebrating it the way that we would even... I mean, everybody knows who Oppenheimer, if you want to go back to nuclear power, everybody knows who that was, and they probably know three or four other names from that, too. I mean, is part of the problem we just don't know mathematicians? 
Yeah, I mean, early on in my career when I was doing pure mathematics, I spent a lot of time in both Hungary and Poland. And in both those countries, the, the best mathematicians were celebrities. They were famous. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, people would recognize their faces. So it is a very much a cultural thing. Uh, we've never had that, that history of, of, of reverence for mathematicians. I mean, a few years ago, I worked on that CBS crime series numbers as an advisor, and I did that unpaid because I thought it was really good to have a mathematician as a hero figure in, 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 a, in, in a TV series. We need to sort of elevate mathematicians in the public, in the public eye uh, as celebrities. Um, you know, there's a new prize, that's, I think it's called the Breakthrough Prize, that Mark Zuckerberg and some other Silicon Valley types have created now that awards people like Terence Tao $3 million prizes uh, for advancing mathematics. Uh, and it was a couple of days ago at NASA Ames where there was a celebration of this. So there is now at least a rising, so there are signs that American culture, or at least parts of it, is beginning to, rec to, to realize that we need to celebrate mathematicians because as a, a country like the United States that depends for its economic prosperity on being innovative and staying ahead of the rest of the game, if we, and this is Mark Saul's point, if we don't produce enough of our own native-born mathematicians, and I'm not native-born, I'm, I'm, I'm a naturalized citizen, but if we don't produce enough mathematicians at the very leading edge, then it's hard to sort of recognize ourselves as being able to maintain that leading position we actually need economically. So there's a real importance to being able to inspire people to get into mathematics and, and, and rise to the very tops of the discipline. All right. I dare not ask another question uh, because we're basically out of time. Uh, but it is, it is great. It's important to tell their stories, too. And it's one of the reasons I love the play uh, Arcadia by Tom Stoppard, because so much of it is about uh, a very gifted young mathematician. It's clearly based on Ada Lovelace. Uh, but, um, it's, you know, even reading about Poincaré today to get ready for this show, what an interesting guy, what an interesting life. Maybe yeah. we just need to uh, tell more stories uh, about these people. It's been great to tell the stories of Xiao Wu, of Mark Saul, and of Dr. Keith Devlin. Uh, thank you so much for being with us on the show today. And and also, a special thanks to, uh, to, to Josh Nalea, who is sort of the, the newest member of our producing team. Very exciting to have him here, and this is sort of Josh's first official show of this kind. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in today. Give circumference, you can rely. If you square the radius times the pi, you will get the circle space. Here's no song about pi. Fit for mathematicians and Dang, girl. If you was x squared, I'd be x cubed over 3 plus a constant, so I could be the area under your curves. Oh, please. If I were Pythagorean, I wouldn't touch you with a 3-4-5 triangle at the end of a pole that was pi times x squared if x was infinite. Oh, snap.